0: From Greenbiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at Greenbiz Headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Apple's Growing Forestry Strategy and the cartoons it's showing about it, Microsoft creates artificial intelligence for the planet. Inside GE's investment in distributed energy startups and why our ecological accounts are 42% overdrawn. We're balancing our budget this week on 350. Without federal oversight, who will be the standard bearer for the environment? Who will inspire, influence, and innovate to secure a sustainable future? Who will create a legacy of leadership? You will. Lead from the front. The Environmental Defense Fund has your back. It's August 4th, 2017. Welcome to this week's episode of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower. And with me is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather.
1: Hello. Reporting in from thunderstormy New Jersey.
0: Might hear a little rumbling in the background. A
1: little is rumbling, it... and it's not my tummy. <laughs> yeah,
0: um, but uh, wow, what a what a crazy summer we're having! Is this just busy, busy, busy? Right? Yeah, I know you are with with Virginal.
1: I am so excited. I'm getting. Uh, I have 13 panel break panels. I'm working on right now. What? For 13. I'm working developing 13 panels for the conference. That's
2: crazy. It is
1: crazy, but it's exciting because they're all super amazing, and I wish I could go to all of them. But uh, we're Confirming speakers, and I, I highly recommend that people check out the program. It's it's getting better and better every hour.
0: So, give me a couple of examples of some of the panels you're excited about.
1: So, I have some terrific speakers on panels that we're doing on the power, the evolution of power purchase agreements. I've got Microsoft and City on that panel. Um, I actually just confirm. We're going to hear from him later. I just confirmed Lucas Chapa who is the chief environmental scientist for Microsoft. Um, and that's a panel that I'm putting together on artificial intelligence. Cool. Yeah, and I've got several that um, we're working on in urban mobility space, ride sharing, and how it will affect city planning and um, you know, how we're gonna share the roads, if you will. So I, yeah, it's fun. I, and I wanna write all these stories about them and don't have enough time, but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll see some of them in the next few weeks. What are you excited about, Joel?
0: Well, I mean, the program, as you said, is, is just great, and I hope everyone goes and checks it out. Um, but I'm also excited about something that we call the Emerging Leaders Scholarship. This is something we launched uh, earlier this year at our Green Biz 17 conference in Phoenix in February. Um, and it's basically our effort to bring in more young and diverse people to the conference. So here's what we're doing. We are uh, giving scholarships and uh, airfare, thanks to United Airlines, and lodging and uh, maybe some other things, to uh, 10 young and diverse uh, people, you know, young professionals, up and coming professionals. And we, de- we, we define diversity sort of broadly. It's not just a matter of, of uh, gender or, or ethnicity or race. It's about how diversity and has been a factor uh, in in one's life, uh, including you know, growing up in a single parent household, perhaps, or having, you know, disabilities, or, or any number of other things that that life throws at you. So we have an application form, and the deadline is a week from today, uh, uh, August eleventh, to apply for one of these ten scholarships. Uh, and I really encourage you. We've been getting a great response, but we want to hear from as many as diverse, uh, an audience as possible. So, um, if you are or know someone who is, uh, might benefit from being at Virgin, and who sort of qualifies for some of the criteria, uh, either undergrad or graduate program at an accredited college or university or a young professional under age 30 who's graduated from an undergrad or graduate program within the past couple of years. You'll see all the, all the criteria on our website and we'll link to that from the greenbiz.com slash 350 webpage. So um, that's coming up. And um Lots more coming up in this program, and let's get into the week in review.
1: All right, I'll get things kicked off, Joel. um, I am reading this morning a wonderful piece by our longtime contributor John Elkington. It's called It's Time to Reimagine Carbon. This story fascinated me partly because um, of some research I was hearing about earlier this year about how we're not doing enough on carbon productivity and on figuring out how to use the carbon that's in the atmosphere in different ways. People have long poo-pooed the idea of carbon capture because it's so expensive and so... um, uh, time-consuming to develop. But um, the piece that, that John wrote this, this week really focuses on, let's think uh, more discreetly, um, how can we create products that use it? So we've written before about uh, packaging and so forth that um, that startups are, are making using carbon, using carbons that's captured and, and thinking of it in different ways. But this is like one of those pieces that kind of rem- reminds you that we need to absolutely focus on the new stuff the clean energy the getting that fossil fuel out of the mix but we also need to look at ways of of using i like love the phrase fugitive carbon in a different way taking those emissions and recapturing reusing rethinking how we how we um handle them
0: yeah i mean john is great at framing i mean this is the guy who 25 years ago 30 years ago came up with the phrase triple bottom line which is now Rolls off a lot of people's tongues uh, in this whole sustainability movement. And he's uh, been organizing with uh, the UN Global Compact something called the Carbon Productivity Base Camp. to bring together people, thought leaders, uh, doers who are looking at this question of how do we... Rethink carbon, you know, because we've we've come to villainize carbon. Uh, carbon, it's bad. We want a low carbon economy. There's the war against carbon, all kinds of things like that. But um, it's not, you know, carbon is a, a critical component. We are all made of it, among other things. And so there's this new language of carbon. Uh, Bill McDonough, the architect designer, laid this out a number of months ago. That so there's living carbon, which is the things that the carbon that flows in organically in biological cycles, providing food and forest and soil. Uh, there's durable carbon, which is that locked in stable solids like coal or trees. Uh, um, and then there's fugitive carbon. That's the bad stuff. That's the stuff that the pollutant carbon pollution, as, some, as the EPA calls it, that goes into the atmosphere and, and and contributes to to climate change. And so the question is, how do we... Uh, you know, use carbon to create a new economy, the new carbon economy around this, um, repatriating the fugitive carbon back to the earth, sequestering it in soil, sequestering it in products, as you're saying, and new, new materials for buildings that uh, replace steel and aluminum and concrete. Um, and so that's really what's going on here. And it's really, really interesting.
1: Yeah. And there's even X Prize devoted to this right now. So... Um, you know, it's, it's not that it's not the notion that we need to create more carbon dioxide emissions, but it's, it's the, the notion of, hey, there's money to be made um, and, and good to be done in, in taking this and, and capturing that fugitive, if you will.
0: This whole idea of a new carbon economy is fascinating to me, as I said. And so I called up John Elkington. He's in, based in London this week uh, on Skype. We had a conversation about you know what 's going on here and and what 's the plan and and what's the vision for this new carbon economy and for rethinking and reimagining carbon Here's that conversation so John, your piece this week uh stemmed from something called the carbon productivity base camp that you ran in June or participated in. Tell me a little bit about that
3: happily Joe um the base camp was um, uh, uh, designed to pull together some of the people who are thinking about climate and carbon. Uh, But at the moment, one of the things that's happening is that we're sort of demonizing carbon because it's up there above our heads and it's causing all sorts of nightmare uh, problems. And this was an attempt to say uh, that's true. And in fact, the two um, uh, studies that Nature just published showing that we are going to uh, whatever we do, almost hit two degrees warming by the end of this century and possibly more. I mean, that, that's the context. But we're basically saying, what would happen if business worked out how to invest carbon in the same way that it currently invests uh, money, finance, um, and, and not just for a financial or even a carbon return, but for a wider social and environmental return uh, as well. And, and we had Paul Hawken uh, of Project Drawdown there. We had Aaron uh, Mizen interface. We had a bunch of other people. A number of them were involved in carbon capture and utilisation. So on, on the sort of the uh, tech uh, side, it was great fun. But we're now beginning to think about what comes next.
0: Well, yeah. What does come next? So what were you hoping came out of the base camp, uh, and where does it go from here?
3: Well, we have uh, a, a number of objectives in mind. One, one of the sort of relatively near-term ones is that in September in New York, the Global Compact has its annual summit. Uh, we've been working with the compact uh, on what we call Project Breakthrough, and this carbon productivity piece is part of that, and the base camps are, in a way, uh, building towards that uh, summit and, and and beyond it. And, and in parallel, we also had, about two or three weeks after the carbon productivity base camp, a second one, but this time on the confluence increasingly between money, uh, data, and trust. And this was one was done in association with the Swiss bank uh, UBS. Um, and, uh, th- th- these initiatives are, are designed to sort of tap into some of the most interesting, innovative uh, thinking and, and, and emerging practices in, in in these different sectors. And in a way, I suppose what we're doing is instead of looking at capitalism simply as a, a, a set of stocks where uh, uh, we're looking at flows and you know, obviously uh, finance, money flows and, 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 and data uh, flows, uh, but also carbon flows, electron flows, uh, people flows, um, even out to sort of genetic flows. And, and, and um, this may or may not prove helpful generally, but it certainly helped us in, in, in picking some of the themes for these uh, base camps.
0: So I love the idea of investing in carbon. And certainly we're seeing a lot of uh, some startups, New Light and others that are that are developing polymers, for example, built for building materials uh, or, or manufacturing or textiles, apparel, kinds of things. Uh, where do you see the, the biggest opportunity for investing in carbon right now in the shorter term?
3: Yeah, well, I think one, one, one of the um... – Immediate issues that we face is that, as you say, there are a lot of technologies and there are some business models uh, emerging in this uh, space. And whether it's pulling uh, atmospheric carbon dioxide back into polymers or materials or whatever it is, you know, th- th- there's a lot of work uh, being addressed in that direction. The problem is that, and, and the Carbon X Prize, I think, has come up uh, against this problem um, that, that the business models. Wrapped around some of the technologies are not yet sufficiently mature, so we we, we have a sort of a bridging um, uh, period, I think, ahead of us. Uh, to your you, to your um, question, though, about uh, I, I, or just back to the the bridging, I, the question is whether governments weighed in and uh, put up budgets, or whether uh, deep uh, pocketed companies do uh, the same. My, my own um, ex- hope, at least, not expectation, is that. Uh, and a growing number of companies will become increasingly interested in this space and begin to uh, invest so to, to your question about wh- how do we invest um, in the carbon sort of uh, the emerging carbon economy I think that 's one part of it but i I think what I find most interesting is this this, this question of how do you as we start over time to constrain Uh, the carbon inputs and flows through our economies and in in this country the UK we have uh, now our fifth round of carbon budgeting at the the national level over time my uh, assumption is that the carbon that we can use in the economy will be increasingly constrained and so how do you get the mindset into business leadership into the the, the minds of investors and, and governments and so on where we think of carbon, firstly, as investable, but then, then whether it's um, in uh, new materials or whether it's in soil regeneration or whatever it is, how do we start to play that new game?
0: You mentioned the the carbon economy, the growing carbon economy, and of course, we've uh, a lot of us have been talking for a long time about the low carbon economy. So it, it seems to me that some of this is just a perceptual change, uh, as your piece is called, reimagining carbon, and just rethinking how we even talk about it.
3: So, uh, yes, it's thinking about carbon as as the sort of a magical ingredient uh, in all life. And, and at the moment, rather, I mean, no question we have to drive uh, the coal industry to extinction. No question that we have increasingly to pressure the oil uh, industry and even some parts of the uh, natural gas um, industry. But in a way, that, that, that's the, the negative side. That's the policing function. That, 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 that's sort of trying to get other people to do things that they don't want to do. And the mindset shift, I think, that we're trying to sort of push towards. And we're not alone uh, in this. I mean, there are others very much uh, working in this space uh, as well. And part, part of what we're trying to do is uh, pull these people together, whether it's the Prize or Project Drawdown or whatever it happens to be, to think much more positively, constructively and creatively about the future of uh, carbon. And I think if we, if we can do that in the right way and the right sort of timescales, uh, we, we can actually make a lot more progress than we're currently making.
0: Well, let's do that. And thank you for showing the way on this. Uh, John Elkington, the chairman and chief pollinator at Volans in London. Thanks, John.
3: Thank you, Joe.
0: So speaking of leadership activities, Let's talk about a story that you did this week about a fairly significant commitment that J.P. Morgan Chase made uh, around uh, renewable energy and green infrastructure. Talk, tell us a little bit about that.
1: So it was really actually hard to write the headline for this story because there are just two huge things that that this organization is doing. First of all, um, they have joined the, if you will, the 100% renewables movement. Um, they have finally actually committed to. Uh, embracing solar wind and other, um, geothermal is one that that came up, other um, clean, if you will, and regenerated power sources for their operations. And this is, they have a pretty substantial um, operation footprint. It's 72 million square feet of office space between the branches they have uh, and the data centers and so forth. So I didn't know this, but um, they had had a a carbon reduction goal, you know, let's be become more efficient, let's cut our, our carbon use. But they had never had a, a renewable target before that they set this one. So that's number one. And like the other, like some of their competitors, um, Bank of America definitely has a similar goal as does uh, Goldman Sachs. Um, and they're all, you know, so they're all shooting for the 2020 timeframe. Um, so that was, that's part one. But part two, which is, profound for other companies, not just J.P. Morgan, is the fact that they're now going to um, commit $200 billion uh, to green infrastructure, green bonds, um, investments that are meant to, to accelerate a low-carbon future and economy. So, And just for perspective, that, that, that breaks down into about $25 billion per year between now and 2025. And they have been—they've been actually pretty re- spending pretty reasonably well up to now. It's—it's it's an average. They—they've been doing an average of about 16 to 17 billion. So this substantially ups the game. And for perspective, we—we we do have a couple of other um, organizations that uh, are at similar targets. So the financial services industry has has really stepped up here. Um but there's there's no one that's made that level of a commitment
0: yeah there's been this kind of uh of one upmanship among all the banks city wells Fargo Bank of America now jpmc and of course goldman uh, about who can commit the biggest number and and it's a you know one of those great races to the top um and the, everybody has slightly different uh criteria about how they define this I do want to you know, give a shout out to Matt Arnold, who heads sustainability at J.P. Morgan Chase. He's a an old pal of mine and green biz. Uh, one of the real pioneers. I mean, he was. I think he, he we first connected right around 1990 or 91 when we were all sort of starting out in this, or a year or two into our sustainable business careers. And he has been pushing this quietly inside J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan. Uh, they kept quiet on this. they had some other fish to fry uh, from reputationally, and I think they've come out of that now and are ready to start making a statement so you'll you'll be seeing a lot more from them. There's on
1: just this. one other thing I need to mention about what they're doing and, and Goldman Sachs is doing something similar. So as you see them making power purchase agreements, I think what will be fascinating to watch is that these organizations are not are going to be signing deals that that are going to be bigger than what they need. So they're able to, to carry the risk and help finance um, these PPAs, maybe bringing in smaller companies. So this could be also sort of another tipping point for the smaller organizations that have kind of said, hey, we want in on these, but they haven't quite had another had a vehicle to do so. This could provide a new vehicle for, for smaller and mid-sized companies to get into the PPA game in a way that they haven't been yet.
0: So another company we wrote about this week is Apple they announced a new achievement commitment that they, uh, as part of their sustainable forestry strategy, specifically, they announced that 320,000 acres of working forest that the company supports in China has been certified by the uh, Ford Stewardship Council. Um, And this is, they are now protecting enough forest to cover all the pulp and paper they use for their product packaging. But that's not what I want to talk about here. uh, Because there's another part of the story that sort of came out at the same time, kind of a parallel story about a series of animated videos that Apple's been doing. They actually launched the first ones uh, around Earth Day, and they just issued another one uh, about this sustainable forestry strategy. And they're just pretty cool. These are animations uh, about some of the company's sustainability initiatives using the the audio from real live employees, you know, sort of talking about what they're doing and turning that into a, a... uh, cartoon a cartoon that's one minute long, but it really packs a lot of information. And it, I'm not doing a good do- job describing it, but I encourage you, we have one embedded in uh, in the story and links to all the others as well. Um, pretty cool.
1: Yeah, and they have new careers as voiceover artists, I guess. But uh, in all seriousness, I appreciate it. I listened to the whole thing, which is not, I mean, it's only a minute long, but but certainly it was like so, it pulled me in. And I couldn't help but think while I was listening to it. Um, of how, well, number one, how cool to have your own cartoon character. Number two, how simply this communicated the, the plan that they had. And anyone, anyone who didn't know anything about sustainable forestry or, or you know what this forest certification is could understand exactly what was happening. I love the simplicity of it.
0: So I called up Lisa Jackson, who's VP of Environment Policy and Social Initiatives and of course, former head of the US EPA, under Barack Obama, uh, to talk about uh, both the forestry initiative, but again, about this animation series. I uh, just wanted to learn what's going on here and why they're doing it. Here's what she had to say. So how did that video project get started? Uh, I know this was done uh, last, uh, back in April, and it got some, uh, a lot of coverage in the tech press. I didn't really see much in the uh, sort of the green media world.
2: Yeah, um, well, that's that's kind of part of the rhyme and reason, I would say, is that uh, we uh, hear constantly that one of the things that would be really impactful is not only to spread the message amongst the converted, if you will, in our community, in the green community, but also amongst our customers, around our suppliers, other businesses. So we wanted to take an approach that we thought would engage people on some fairly you know, complex and in some cases a little uh, unusual ideas. So the idea of the circular economy or the idea of really thinking about the resource value of trees and how that relates to our packaging, you know, those can be pretty dry to explain, you know, and you kind of lose the average consumer or the average user somewhere after the first couple of sentences. So uh, it was actually us working with our wonderful marketing um, team. They do such an amazing job on our products. They came up with the idea of these little shorts that would be easy to share uh, on social media or with friends that would tackle one of these subjects and sort of put a little bit more meat on the bones of what it what it means to make the kind of commitments Apple's made around 100% renewable, around our paper footprint, around the circular economy, but do it in a way that gave you it in the voice of the people at Apple who are really doing the work. So um, I love them because I think they get the message across, but they're still authentic. They're not, you know, a beautiful picture of a sunset. They're real work that's being done on the ground in places around the world to try to leave the world better than we found it. So what's been the response since you released them in April? Uh, they've been wonderful. You know, we use them all the time. We released them in April. We didn't, uh you know, I, if you if you've seen us in past years, I know you saw us in the first year. A lot of the work we did was geared for the web, and what we learned was a lot of people who go on the website, they are people who are in the field. They're pretty savvy on issues of sustainability, and so for them, you know, the animations. They're not for them. They enjoyed them. But what we really found was how many people really engaged with them, uh, whether on our YouTube channel or on social media, and how many of them, you know, made remarks about something they learned um, and how many folks said, hey, you know, I can do some of this. You know, if Apple can go zero waste, that's something that I might aspire to in my school, in my home, or at my job. So the idea was to try to reach people where they are, something uh many companies try to do without sounding preachy or without sounding like we were greenwashing
0: how do you think the image of apple has changed from an environmental perspective outside of the of the environmental uh, usual suspects they acquire in terms of the tech community or the customer base uh, for a long time they there was either little or no, or to whatever extent there was, there was a lot of criticism. Do you get a sense now that the non-environmental world has uh, is seeing you differently?
2: Absolutely. Um, I don't want to sound, you know, uh, like we're blowing our own horn, but, you know, you and I talked a few years ago when I first got here that part of what we just needed to do was tell our story, not to brag, but because if you want people to know who you are, um, you know you have to give them proof points you have to you have to tell them you have to be willing to to let them in to be transparent so you know whether it's you know going back to the uh c d p reporting um and verification our uh, hard work around resources recycling um and standard setting whether it's e p or now our commitment to a closed loop supply chain, whether you know the visible and um Strong support from the top of the organization, uh, even to um, our engineers who um, work on product design, in really, you know, stressing how much we have to, how we think about the environment and the kinds of sort of behind-the-scenes work that that uh, commits us to. I think all of that has helped a lot. We've seen a a great response from um, investors who care about this issue. And, um, you know, our workforce loves it. This is a group of folks who come here to do the work of their lives, and you want to do the work of your life at a place that lives by its values, and, uh, you know, Tim has uh, been very vocal on the idea that a business and a company should have values and should, should live them every day.
1: And finally, this week we had one of those rather dubious, momentous occasions, if you will. Earth overshoot day, which uh, if you to put it simply is the date when humanity's annual demand on nature exceeds what the earth can regenerate over the course of one year. So pretty uh, simple concept um, but a profoundly troubling one. Um, right now that the, the numbers say that we are consuming 1.7 times more than we um, we can actually replenish and I love the fact, I hate this number, but I love how how succinctly it it, it makes us think about this this dilemma um, deforestation, drought, you know we're using water, we're using soil we're we're destroying biodiversity at a much quicker pace than we have decades ago. The good news that I took away from from the numbers that were were published in this week's story was that you know we haven't really budged on this day in the last six or seven years. Like that, it's been about the same date, uh, early August, um, for the last few years. But we need to do more to make it later and later and later in the year, right? So, um, as you mentioned in our intro, we are 42 percent overdrawn, and I want to know what you are doing to pay off the debt. You collectively, you. GreenBiz 350 listeners.
0: Uh, Well, you know, I mean, I, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. I barely drive. I mean, I, you know, I put on about five thousand miles a year and have put on about five, maybe five between five and six thousand miles a year for the last thirty years. Um, You know, I cut back on uh, eat very little red meat as much as I enjoy doing so. Uh, You know, just uh, a lot of little things that that we all do. I mean, but my Big downfall is air travel. Um, the amount of air travel I do fifty sixty seventy thousand miles a year sometimes more um, wipes all of that other stuff out so that's and and the same thing with our company I mean our company we have this you know twenty people in an office in downtown Oakland um, with a few exceptions like you heather who who work remotely uh, we're right at a at a subway stop at a bus line, and uh, a lot of people walk or bike or takes most people take public transit walk or bike into the office. Uh, we have these great windows. We barely turn on turn on the lights. Uh, the, uh, we open the windows, fresh air. We don't really turn on heating or air conditioning. We go through not that much paper. But the minute I fly anywhere, not to mention the rest of our team, um, you know, and, and sending the whole team to Hawaii in, in, in every June to do our verge conference, you know that that busts the budget right there. Uh, but I think it's interesting, and you mentioned this sort of where we where we are now, sort of early August. So this is the point in the year when we when we use up our ecological budget. So once upon a time, and once upon a time being in the let's say the '90s, it was um, in the middle of October. We we had a lot. It took us a lot longer to use up our budget, and then it started creeping up. And particularly in the early 2000s, it it started getting into September and mid September. Uh, but as you said, uh, it's it's been plateauing at, uh, at around early August where we are now, which is, um, you know, good news. The bad news is that we're plateauing at, at, at using 1.7 Earth's, uh, you know, worth of resources, uh, you know, grazing land, cropland, uh, you know, fisheries and all of that. And last, I checked. I'm gonna look out the window right now to confirm. Yeah, there's still just one Earth out there. <laughs> so this is this, and, and this is the Global Footprint Networks effort to to un, help us understand that, and also to bring just the whole notion of footprinting uh, to the for uh, that this is something that they do for for nations and and uh, cities, and uh, you know, I'm not sure so much about the private sector, but. Uh, this is a, a, a methodology that was uh, developed by um, their, their, their founder, Mattis uh, Wackernagel, uh, who uh, you know, really helped create, along with some other people, uh, this notion of, of footprint and what is a global footprint. Uh, so this is something I encourage you to check it out. Check out Global Footprint Network. They're doing great work.
1: I love how they communicate this, and it could provide a great tool for brands to do the same. Like, if your program pushes that date back one and a half days or two days by a certain time frame, that is cool, easily conceivable metric.
0: Without federal oversight, who will be the standard bearer for the environment? Who will inspire, influence, and innovate to secure a sustainable future? Who will create a legacy of leadership?
4: You will. Lead from the front. The Environmental Defense Fund has your back.
1: Marianne Wu is a managing director for GE Ventures, the venture capital subsidiary of the industrial giant General Electric. Her team is behind the firm's investments in the Internet of Things and energy technologies, including the building management software company Lucid, and several others that are playing the storage space, such as Sonnen, STEM, and AMS, and many more. Welcome to Green Biz 350, Marianne.
5: Oh, thank you so much for having me here, Heather. I'm excited to be here.
1: Great. So let's start with where you're focused. Many of your investments center on technologies that enable distributed energy resources in applications. Why are you so bullish on that opportunity?
5: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, We're really excited by this opportunity for a number of reasons. Core among them is the cost reduction of the underlying technologies. So if you look at solar cells in particular, but if you also look at batteries and power electronics, the cost curve and the cost reduction that these technologies have come down is just tremendous and amazing. So these technologies are, um, are just cost effective straight up. The, the second reason, and so we, we call this at GE, we call this really the, the emergence of solid state and the, the economies of scale that go with solid state. The second reason we're so excited about it is that we now have reached the um, the age of distributed digital intelligence. And so you mentioned in the intro that part of what my team does is IoT. And, and what IoT enables is that you can have local compute and control, and you can optimize resources on a system-wide basis. So if you look at energy, that gives the opportunity for any resource to be used for multiple values and multiple value streams and allows system-wide optimization. In, In some ways, this is the same as we've seen in transportation with ride sharing, where a single car can get used for multiple users, and so the economics of that service improve we, ha- we have the same potential and energy.
1: Well, you, a moment ago you said we at GE. So I, I wanted to pause just for a moment and, and ask you how what you're doing fits back into the the company's overarching sustainability strategy. I believe um, it's branded under the eco uh centerpiece. How does that fit back to what uh, GE? Yeah.
5: Yeah. No, great question. So a couple things here. Uh, first, I'll focus on Eco. And so GE is 100% committed to sustainability. EcoMagination is a big corporate wide program. We have to do that. It has hit 42% reduction in GEE greenhouse gas emissions, 50% reduction in fresh water use, um, $480 million in savings from energy efficiency. Uh, so it's a big sustainability objective. At the same time, it's really significant. Revenue production is $270 billion in revenue while saving, having benefits for our end customers and a big R&D investment of $20 billion. So what GE is really fundamentally committed to sustainability and our investing activities are in concert with that. The, the other thing that's probably worth explaining is the purpose of GE Ventures investment. And so we invest... Um, certainly for financial return like all investors, but we also invest uh, for strategic benefit to the corporation. And by that, I mean that we work on uh, investments that are in market areas that we at GE think are exciting and representative of the future where those companies potentially have uh, commercial relationships um, either selling to GE or working with GE to sell to our, our mutual customers. And so we work in Areas that we really see as the future of, in this case, energy.
1: So I was looking at the portfolio, and we do not have time to talk about all of those investments, um, but I wanted to ask you about a couple of areas. I'm deluged almost every day by pitches from companies selling energy storage, energy storage technologies, hardware, software, etc. Um, you have at least three startups representing that sector in your portfolio. I mentioned it before, STEM, AMS, Sonnen, I'm sure I'm missing some, but I'm wondering if you could pause a moment and chat about what makes each of these firms unique, right? Obviously, you picked these guys for a reason. What makes these firms unique?
5: Uh, If we get into the specific companies, uh, we pick these companies, as as you said, because we really think they're leaders um, in their respective spaces and and in their areas. If I start maybe with Sonan, at the consumer end of the value chain, Uh, Sonnen started in Germany. They really have a customer foothold in Europe, and they're focused on consumers. And so what their value proposition is to end customers is save money um, on your energy bills um, and commit to green power. So they let those customers take the solar resource that they're already generating and self-consume it and optimize their energy bills through doing that. And that's what they really started with, what they've moved on to now, and one of the things we're so excited by, is this model where they have their customers joined together into a community. Within that community, they allow the customers to effectively trade power and energy resource between, within that community. So those, those customers are lever- getting better value out of the energy resources, those storage resources that are deployed but they're also really committing to green within their community with the solar and storage resource that that is deployed in that community. So we're really excited by that model. They have great customer attraction and have signed up a a number of um, consumer customers. And that's sewn in. So moving on to STEM and AMS, um, both of these companies are more focused in the U.S. They're headquartered in the U.S., Um, STEM is focused on C&I, commercial and industrial customers first, and they're really focused on driving down energy costs by reducing demand charges for those customers. They have a dual benefit back to utilities, so that distributed resource that's deployed now at those customer sites can be used for energy share, for grid services, um, back into the utilities. So um, we do think commercial and industrial customers are one of the key constituents in this value chain of really getting storage deployed and and utilized. So we're excited with the focus that STEM has on them. And they have some great customer wins uh, with Intercontinental, Whole Foods, um, and these are sort of chain-wide relationships, uh, wet and wild, and with a number of university campuses. So we really like their focus on commercial and industrial customers. And then the last company in the portfolio is AMS. Um, Advanced Microgrid Solutions, and they're really focused on the utility side of this equation where they look at using and siting storage for optimal grid benefit to remove congestion, to relieve congestion. And we're excited that they have some great customers with SDG&E, Southern California Edison, uh, Southern Company, and excited by the traction and focus they have on those customer sets. So when you look at the portfolio of storage companies we've built out, we really look at different constituents in the value chain uh, and consumers, residential customers, commercial and industrial customers, and utilities and really wanted to have a play focused on each of those.
1: So you mentioned before distributed intelligence, right? And one of the companies that I see that fits into that space would be Mbala. Um, I And one of the concepts that I know that they tout and, and I think is of interest to the the. 350 listenership is this concept of virtual power plants. So I'm curious, you know, and in, your, in your estimation, why is that concept finding traction? The idea that these things could become uh, power plants on, in and of themselves, distributed um, and not necessarily centralized.
5: Yeah, I think this is an idea that um, is really starting to, to get some traction behind it it's exciting. It really feeds into this idea of distributed resources. And if you can use those distributed resources, certainly for their local purpose, right? If, they're, if you're sited at um, a hotel or in your uh, at a residence, you want that customer to get benefit. But wouldn't that be better if multiple users could get benefit off of that? And so I think the virtual power plant is really about this idea that these distributed resources, if they're networked and connected, then why can't we optimize across the system so that those resources can be called on um, like a power plant, uh, but a virtual power plant. So it's really the same concept that's sitting behind what I talked about with Sona and Stam and AMS, that you have this resource that can serve a local benefit, but also be aggregated to serve a grid side and utility side benefit. It's the same idea that's also... um, uh, conceptually behind a company like Invala Power Networks, which really uses um, existing resources. So any commercial or industrial customer has loads. They may have, in terms of you know, HVAC or chilling or lighting or other, um, they all may, may already have energy storage or solar on that site. So how can I provide some overall intelligence and control on top of those existing resources to make them benefit the system overall? And and that's really, I think, this concept that we're all very excited by that really rides in parallel with, you know, significant now deployment of solar, um, the need for more dynamic resource now across the grid because of the duck curve, the advent of IoT that is really allowing this distributed intelligence uh, and the local compute and the local control to optimize the system Uh, that we're really seeing all of these things explode together. And I think it's a really exciting time in energy.
1: Well, and one final area I want to ask you about, because it is impossible to talk about the future of energy now without talking about transportation and the transportation sector. So what do you see as the relationship between this new world of distributed energy that you're talking about and the future of mobility, are they interrelated? You know, where do you see the, the intersection occurring there?
5: Yeah, I, I think this is a huge intersection point and transportation and mobility are really exciting right now. If you, if you look at um, transportation and mobility, there's really three concurrent trends that are riding uh, that are occurring at the same time. One is vehicles are electrifying uh, and going electric the second is we're seeing the rise of shared uh, sharing business models like uh, an Uber or a Lyft where um, multiple users can use the same car. Um, and then we're seeing uh, the, the rise of autonomous. So all three of these things are coming together in transportation and mobility are undergoing tremendous disruption. All of these will impact energy. In in many ways, maybe electrification is the most direct um, Obviously, if you switch a car over to a, an electric vehicle, you have, um, or, or multiple cars over, you have significant growth in the electricity load. And those are also very concentrated loads, so there's are going to be big grid impacts. Um, if you look at, uh, and, and this is hard because we're projecting, but if you look at some sort of relatively uh, conservative pro- projections, you're looking at... Um, An EV forecast, which is – EVs being forecast to be 2% of global electricity by 2030. And on any measure, you see electric vehicles dwarfing stationary storage. Even today, they dwarf stationary storage, roughly 10x that. So so aside from the energy load growth, the the other thing that that, um, is interesting is that the cars themselves or the buses or the vehicles – become a distributed energy resource that could potentially be harnessed as part of this virtual power plant or um, distributed network. Um, and so you can start to control the charge to those vehicles. In the future, you might see vehicle-to-grid charging. So the growth of these EVs is a tremendous change and a tremendous additional resource on the network. The the other thing is you know, these shared and autonomous models. And, Maybe this is a little bit less direct, but, but we already talked about at the beginning how um, in some ways the idea of a virtual power plant is very similar to the sharing business models we've seen uh, proliferate now in transportation and mobility. Um, and the other thing that we'll see is, as cars and transportation fundamentally start to shift is we'll see changes in real estate, logistics, and supply chain, all of these things that are big drivers of underlying energy consumption, and we're going to see urban infrastructure start to change. So the underlying infrastructure requirements uh, and design will start to shift. So it's a really exciting time as these two big, massive industries, transportation and energy are starting to fundamentally mix as they both evolve.
1: Lots to consider and to mull over. Thank you for getting my brain going today. I appreciate it. Um, thanks for joining us on Green Biz 350, Marianne.
5: Heather, thanks so much for having me really exciting
0: to have the conversation. So let's do a quick word association game. When you think of insurance, what comes to mind? You're probably thinking about cars, life health, apartment insurance, boring stuff like that, but what about a coral reef? So there's a new insurance policy pioneered by the insurance reinsurance company Swiss Re and the Nature Conservancy. It's aimed at a new kind of customer, the coral reef, which attracts sea life and tourists, to Cancun. So can insurance create a sea change in coverage? Associate Editor Anya Hollemeiser is riding this wave. Anya, tell us what you found.
6: So this makes me think about uh, Finding Nemo, but with a little insurance salesman fish living in the reef. Um, but it's actually not such a wild idea if you think about it. Um, this new insurance policy, the specifics, um, it's being piloted by the Nature Conservancy. It's a nonprofit, and um, Swiss Re, which is a reinsurer, uh, the reinsurance industry, backs up big risks that regular insurance companies wouldn't be able to um, wouldn't be able to insure and it has the uh, backing of the Mexican government, and the policyholders are technically the hotels and other business owners um, along the beach whose livelihoods depend on tourism, depend on also the protection that the reef provides from storms and other natural catastrophes. So if a natural disaster damages the reef, which has been happening recently, there's been in recent years a huge die-off and bleaching of of corals, um, and the hotel owners get a payout so they can continue their business and the reef receives funding for revitalization. In a story that ran on Tuesday on GreenBiz called Ensuring Nature, Ensuring Resilience, it was adopted from a speech by Nature Conservancy CEO, Mark Tersek. And he spoke about how the insurance sector, like any other business sector, can help address these big challenges um, that society faces. Coral reefs are really important to the economy they, uh, as I mentioned, they provide an economic service. Um, they protect um, billions of dollars in, in buildings from flooding, and um, just one meter of coral reefs can stop ninety-seven percent of wave activity from a, from a storm. So it, it provides more than just tourism activity. It provides literally protection from the ocean and uh, I spoke with Kathy Bowman, Managing Director of Climate Risk and Resilience for the Nature Conservancy, about exactly what coral insurance is, and how it works, and also what kind of service it can provide in the future.
4: This reef and beach insurance policy is designed to provide coverage for the beach and the reef in a stretch near um, Cancun in Quintana Roo State in Mexico. And what it does is provide insurance coverage such that if the reef is damaged by a storm and the beach is damaged by a storm, a payout would go to repair the beach and the reef. Let me just go a little bit higher level. So if you think about the reef like a seawall that's protecting the coastal economy there and the, the big economy and... We've seen numbers like, you know, $10 billion per year for this area in terms of tourism revenue. So they're dependent on tourism and they're dependent on the reef to protect them. And so a lot of the hoteliers and the local businesses understand um, anecdotally and inherently that the reef is protecting them and their assets. But heretofore, there was not the quantitative protection that the reef is providing to the coastal assets. And so when the hotels and the local government understand how valuable the reef is quantitatively and they see um, storm seasons coming and the dependency on the beach and the reef for their income and the need for the reef to be repaired quickly after it's damaged, which is one of the key elements of the science of this, is that we know that when a reef is damaged, and it isn't repaired immediately after the exposure on the shore is just bigger for the next storm. And so the reef needs help in repairing and the corals need to be collected and rested and reattached. And so uh, the the idea that the money can be quickly appropriated to pre-determined activities that repair the reef and the beach means getting back to the protection that it was providing and uh, creating more resilience for that local economy. Our early analysis shows that when a meter of the Mesoamerican reef in this area is lost, which is a common result of how a um, a reef gets impacted after a, a strong storm, that you will see a tripling of the damage on shore that's, that's economic damage but also area flooded and then how many people are impacted so it's providing an immense amount of protection and thus our need to protect it and restore it after its damaged from a storm and connecting that need for protection to the interests on the shore which is the hotels and the hotel association in concert with the local government.
0: So Anya, is this the first of its kind policy for an ecosystem, and and what solution does the insurance industry hold that simply investing in the reef itself wouldn't get
1: you?
6: This is the first policy of its kind for ecosystems, and it's still being uh, funded and developed. So it is still in its initial pilot phase. Um, The insurance industry has played a role in solving these critical societal risks during other periods of rapid change in the past. For example, um, at the turn of the century, uh, the insurance industry helped solve the problem of uh, widespread fires in urban areas. So here is Kathy explaining how they can deal with society's big, wicked problem
4: today, the depletion of natural resources. At the turn of the 19th century, lots of big cities were burning to the ground, Tokyo and Chicago and San Francisco, and when it was time to rebuild the, the... industry said we, we can't insure you unless you can reduce this risk and so you can have insurance if you will include a fire escape or um, fire hydrants this is where fire stations were were born and so you know fast forward several decades people were being injured and killed in cars that had dangerous pointy dashboards and the industry said they're There's got to be a way to reduce the risk to injury in these vehicles. Let's try mandatory seatbelts. And so the industry played a role in pushing for um, increased safety in in automobiles. And, of course, that reduces their risk and reduces their exposure. But when when we started thinking about how could we use the industry that cares most about risk to help ensure and restore these natural ecosystems that are playing such a huge role in protecting coastal economies and people – Um, there's got to be a way. Let's dig into the details and find a way to marry all of these interests into a commercial product that's scalable and replicable that protects and restores coastal ecosystems, but also uh, creates a new industry.
0: Well, what's the role of the policyholder, the hotels, the business owners that are around the coral reef in protecting the reef as a natural asset?
6: My question to Kathy was whether the business owners are responsible for protecting the reef. So what the insurance policy does, it feeds into a fund that is then used to rehab the coral if it's damaged. They literally take it out of the water, they nurture it back to health, and then put it back in the water. Here's Kathy discussing how the hotels and beach businesses play a role in protecting the reef, and also the Nature Conservancy's experience in engaging them to buy the insurance.
4: It falls to a fund that is being created with shared governance and so that governance will look like um, the hotel association would have a seat and the local state government and the environment ministry and the tourism ministry um, will have a seat and there may be municipalities in the governance of the fund and the science community will be represented and the way that that funding will be spent will be predetermined and so the purchase of the insurance happens by the fund and the spend of the money is also uh, being governed by the fund. And there's a a science and technical committee associated with it. And so you'll see um, this body performing the the governance of all aspects of the fund and the insurance and the payout and the activities and all done in a transparent way. So um, some of the challenges are that this is a new idea. That we're working not only, you know, insurance is a from the Nature Conservancy's perspective, um, insurance is a means to an end with all of the pressures on our natural resources and understanding that the role that nature can play in combating climate change, both in mitigation and adaptation. Our interest is in changing the way people see these natural assets and creating new ways to protect them, both with science and with funding. And so the challenge is to help people see how reef insurance and beach insurance could be a new way and a standard way. Now, we'd like to make this a very mainstream product that um, communities that are dependent on natural resources, not just reefs, but even mangroves and coastal wetlands and dunes, they are buying insurance to protect them as a matter of course, and that the payouts from those coverages go back into protecting those natural assets, which is ultimately good for the community, good for nature, good for the economy, and reduces the cost of uh, covering those risks, because the risk is reduced.
0: Well, I imagine coral reefs aren't the only application for this kind of insurance. Where else can we apply this?
4: As the
6: insurance industry, like other economic sectors, is waking up to the costs and impacts of uh, climate-related catastrophes on their revenue and on natural assets at large, they're innovating new markets um, to deal with the damage and find (coughs) ways of doing things. So it's natural for them to integrate thinking about natural resources and how to revitalize them into their core business. And here's Kathy talking about how to scale ecosystem insurance.
4: One of the ways we would look to scale this particular approach is to think about countries that are dependent on reefs for protection and dependent on reefs for tourism value and revenue. And take a look at is that reef providing the highest protection and that that, um, tourism value, that would be a natural place to adopt this approach. And so our next step, of course, from a a global perspective of scaling this product and this um, approach is to go to those countries and those communities, working through the hotel industry and working with the insurance industry to say, Let's go quickly to those places that could benefit from this and get to scale as quickly as possible.
0: Really interesting stuff. Anya Hollemeiser, Associate Editor, thank you for that deep dive.
4: Thanks, Joel.
1: You could describe artificial intelligence as the buzziest of all the tech buzzwords you hear, but the potential applications for the field of sustainability are very real. Or they would be real if scientists and researchers had the tools to experiment. That's the aim of Microsoft's new AI for Earth program. The initiative builds on the software giant's decade of research into a variety of applications ranging from smart agriculture to land cover mapping. And in the coming months, Microsoft will start awarding more than $2 million in grants it has committed to help getting things started and to help encouraging lighthouse applications that show just how compelling AI could be. The initial focus is on wooing members of the scientific community, but eventually it will expand into potential commercial applications related to addressing climate change, conserving water, and preserving biodiversity. Microsoft has even created a new corporate role, Chief Environmental Scientist, to lead the charge. The first person to be anointed with that title is longtime Microsoft researcher Lucas Chapa. We spoke with Chapa about his mission. And here are highlights from that interview
7: we believe both because of our own research our own experience as well as a lot of outside in communication that that artificial intelligence and the and the work that and the technologies that microsoft's putting out has the potential to significantly transform the way that um, sust- environmental sustainability is done but there's these four kind of or three limiting factors let's say and the first is really getting access to our tools um, because oftentimes we're dealing with pretty resource-constrained organizations. So making it a lot easier for outside organizations in the sustainability arena to get access to our tools and then getting them actually trained up on on how to use those tools because, like I said, most of these organizations don't necessarily have the resources to be hiring all of the world's uh, top data scientists and, and machine learning experts. So... Getting them access, getting them education, and then also collaborating directly with a few of those outside organizations on some lighthouse projects that can help. Hopefully, if we do these things right, really showcase the transformational capacity that AI really has um, for sustainability. So we structured this in, in kind of a breadth and depth model. Get as much, get as many organizations uh, to have access to our tools. Work with them to get them trained up to know how to use it, and then work directly with a few of them on some lighthouse examples to to really show the world what's, what's possible here. Relatively recently, what changed with our ambitions and our scale was that um, we, I actually moved out of Microsoft Research into a more corporate role, um as the into this new position of chief environmental scientist and that position was created because the company wanted us to move from simply kind of a a Works kind of approach to a much more microsoft uh approach we wanted to start bringing the full power of of our of our ai tools and 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 services to this space not just kind of what um what we might be able to do in the research space Uh, so we funded this thing, um, we formalized it. We actually, like I said, put these pillars in place. We put the programmatic aspects in place so that it's not just researchers working on this problem anymore, but we actually have access. We have the capacity to provide access to a much broader Microsoft set of of skills and services. Why is this all happening now? I think it's because, for the same reason that a lot of things are, are happening right now. The tools and the technology are we're just we're reaching this tipping point where all of the stuff that we used to talk about in the research community, the things that five years ago we were all huddling together kind of, you know, in in um in research laboratories showing each other, they were things that we thought were gonna take twenty years to come to fruition. And five or six years later now, these things are general availability services that are being offered on a global basis through a massive technology company. I mean, even as the researchers that were, you know, fundamental in building a lot of these, um, a lot of these capacities that now uh, provide the foundations for the Microsoft's overall AI stack, it's been incredible to all of us to see just how fast this stuff has moved and what is really possible when you take a lot of the kind of leading research minds in AI and a massive and hugely competent engineering force that Microsoft brings and puts those two things together. So, you know, if if you look at just things like image recognition, for instance, we used to – work on projects trying to use the latest machine learning algorithms for classifying images and uh, classifying species in camera trap images. You know, organizations are putting out camera traps, motion activated cameras all over the world to try and capture the species that are going past them um, every day in, in, in um, natural environments. And those things are capturing incredible amounts of photos. And so from the very beginning, the question was, well, how do we go through all of these? How do we train a computer, et cetera, et cetera? And at the time, you know, 10, 8 years ago, to do something like that required a dedicated research team. And now we're able to use things like our computer vision API to in real time train up you know the algorithms that are that are able to do things in in minutes that used to take research teams that I led months to do. So so the technology is just finally there where you can start actually honestly talking about putting this technology in the hands of people who aren't experts and having them be able to have, make significant progress with them. One of our lighthouse projects is around trying to provide the first high-resolution land cover map of the United States using deep learning. And because I come from this world, I get excited just saying that, and then I get disappointed that nobody else um, gets as excited as I do when I just say that, so I'll provide a little bit of uh, background about what we're trying to do there. But in the United States, you know, the current best land cover map that we have at a national scale is at 30-meter resolution, and it's almost five years old. And the reason that land cover maps matter, right, is because that's the first order data set that we need to be able to make informed land use man- management decisions, right? So where should we be putting developments? Where should we be putting green infrastructure? How should we be managing agricultural runoff? All of those things require uh, up-to-date and highly spatial Resolved understanding of what is where on the land and how fast is it changing. And I think that what surprises people a lot of times when I talk about applications like this is just how far in reality we actually are from where most people think we are. We're able to do some pretty incredible things with data and analytics, but we haven't made significant uh, inroads with those same approaches into gathering data about our natural systems and using those to inform our our policy. So we've been working with a small organization called the Chesapeake Conservancy on the East Coast um, who themselves with many partners had spent the past 18 months putting together the first high resolution land cover data set of the Chesapeake Bay watershed which is one of the fastest um, growing regions in the United States of massive economic importance and also a place where they've been struggling for a long time to sustainably manage these very economically important um, natural resources like their fisheries and and things like that. And we thought that was fantastic. We'd helped them with that project through giving them access to Azure and some of our technical expertise that, that, that helped accelerate their work. But once they finished, we stepped back and we thought, you know, this is actually a really interesting application because for the first time now, we have the capacity to use the billions of pixels that they created across that entire watershed to train up a deep learning algorithm, which is one of the kind of the foundations of the AI revolution that's going on more broadly, to train up one of these really data-hungry algorithms in such a way that we could use that same single algorithm to classify land cover across the United States so that it's not just one small piece of the U.S. that gets the benefit of this high-resolution um, high resolution land cover data and the ability to manage their lands using it, but the entire United States, the counties and municipalities across the U.S. Are, are using. And we've got two other projects, one in the agriculture space called FarmBeats, um, and that is all about bringing connectivity to agricultural um, systems. And then once that comes through TV White Space, which is one of Microsoft's um, digital connectivity uh, broadband solutions, and I can talk a little bit more about that in a second. But um, so kind of an out-of-the-box solution where... You can open that thing up, set up connectivity for all the devices on your farm, and then start deploying increasingly intelligent devices that are collecting data, sending them back to a centralized node, which itself is running algorithms to determine um, what actions to take and where. And that's also connected up to our Azure cloud, which is running even deeper and more sophisticated algorithms, all with the intent to help farmers be able to understand what to plant, when and where to increase their yields, but also to minimize their um, negative impacts on their lands. And then the last one is uh, in collaboration with an uh, uh, organization inside Microsoft called Project Premonition, which was all about deploying new smart mosquito traps around the world to be able to run metagenomic analyses on the blood that those mosquitoes are collecting in order to provide an early warning system for disease detection, issues like Zika and Ebola. And we're partnering with Project Premonition to move beyond just looking for diseases, but to be able to use that same system to be able to monitor Um, So, again, from the genetic information, to be able to monitor all of the species that are roaming around in that system as well, and hopefully the populations of them. Microsoft's convinced that AI approaches have a significant potential to transform the way that sustainability is done. We're not here to say that AI is the answer. We're here to say that AI is an important part of the answer. But we're also here to say that we want to help, that we understand that it's not as simple as people just saying, oh, maybe I should do that and going off and doing it. Sometimes you need assistance from the companies that are producing this technology that know how to use it. And um, and are capable of, of working with you to to do that. And so that's what we're here for. That's what the AI for Earth program was designed to um, enable. And that's what what I would like people to to take away from this. And I, and just that this is something that Microsoft is is significantly committed to. I mean, we're the only technology company in the world with a chief environmental scientist, right? And there's a reason for that. It's because we're we're investing in this.
0: Well, that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com/slash 350 and you'll find more about the organization, stories, events, and other things we've mentioned. And you can contact us by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love your comments. Thanks to Greenbiz350 director, Stephanie Joyce. And we'll be back here next week for another edition from all of us here at Greenbiz Group. I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. Without federal oversight, who will be the standard-bearer for the environment? Who will inspire, influence, and innovate to secure a sustainable future? Who will create
4: a legacy of leadership? You will. Lead from the front. The Environmental Defense Fund has your back.